0: The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Welcome to another episode of The Liberating Arts. With me today is Kathleen Fitzpatrick. She is the Director of the Digital, of Digital Humanities and a Professor of English at Michigan State University, just up the road from me. Uh, And she's also held leadership roles for the MLA uh, in the past, and currently serves as the project director of the Humanities Commons, which we might talk about a little bit today. But we'll mostly be talking about her, uh, I guess I can say, two most recent books. Uh, The first one is published, and you should read it, and it's called Generous Thinking uh, from John Hopkins Press. And her current project, which is available in draft form, uh, on her website and is in the process of also becoming a book is called Generous Leadership. And it's, you know, as, as it sounds, uh, a sort of sequel or follow-up to uh, Generous Thinking. So thank you for being with us today and sharing your insights on generosity and what what this mode of thinking and leading might entail for liberal arts education.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I wanted to start off by just asking you to define your understanding of generous thinking and generous leadership, because it might not be entirely uh, what what readers or listeners think when they hear that term. Uh, And I'll quote from from your definition of generous thinking. You say, uh, it emphasizes listening over speaking, community over individualism, collaboration over competition, and lingering with the ideas that are in front of us rather than continually pressing forward to where we want to go. So what does this look like? why is it why is it necessary right now do you think?
1: Yeah well, I mean, if you look around too far, I mean, look around the internet, look at news media, look at the ways that people engage with one another on the street, um, we are in a culture that is in desperate need um, of a little bit more generosity in the ways that that we understand and interact and work with one another. And when I when I say generosity, I think a lot of people um, sort of automatically leap to um like thinking about philanthropy, thinking about ideas of giving, thinking about volunteering, thinking about you know, the ways in which we sort of concretize our generosity to the world. As I understand it and as I really mean it in in particularly in generous thinking, I'm really thinking about about a way of being in the world, something that's an ongoing practice. And it's the kind of practice that one might find in meditation or in exercise or in prayer or in a whole lot of other understandings of, of yourself in relationship to something larger in the world. Um, that generosity is meant to be a, a kind of receptivity right, a kind of openness to the ways that others think and to the ways that the world interacts with you. And so hence that that list of things that you mentioned, community over idealism, um, uh, collaboration over competition, that what I'm really hoping in, in promoting a kind of generosity as the base for our ways of being with one another in the academy and between the academy and the broader publics that we work with is really recognizing that, you know, we often get put into the position of of instructor, right? I am the one in this room with the knowledge, and I am here to share it with you. And we understand that sharing is being an act of generosity, Um, I really want to stand that on its head and say that in many, many instances, the, the most generous thing that we can do is listen to what somebody else has to say and attempt to understand who they are and where they are as they're saying it. And really then from that position, attempt to build a conversation.
0: That's really helpful. And I think, uh, you know, I assume our listeners can, can begin to, to imagine the contours of your argument about how this mo this posture is uh, not one that is commonly formed in the practices of academia that, that much more often academia practice uh, encourages us, shapes us to be, uh, individualistic and, um, sort of ag- agonistic or competitive in the way that we frame ideas so that it, it really is, um, You said flips it on its head or really is a kind of a 180 from much of typical academic culture, even if we might promote ideas that are about generosity or service, uh, that's not typically our way of being.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, and it starts it starts really early, right? You can see yourself in the seminar room um, needing to be the one who has the correct idea or who, who is able to pull the attention to the idea that you have. And we recognize you know, that that, that mode of individualistic argument is what we're rewarded for all the way through our academic careers um, into getting a job, into maintaining that job um, through process of peer review and evaluation that that we're constantly being asked to put ourselves forward and our own ideas forward as the most correct. Um, But... The, the kinds of the ways that those ideas best get built is often a really collaborative process, even if that collaboration is all behind the scenes. Yeah. And so finding ways to foreground that collaboration and conversation and, you know, not incidentally to create institutions where that kind of collaboration can be rewarded um, is a big, a big part of the work that I'm, I'm trying to take on.
0: Yeah, I want to turn to that institutional question in a minute. But first, I want to ask uh, you know, about this. At some level, you know, I think listeners can hear you talk about this and hear an argument for generosity as a performative contradiction, right? Yeah. And you talk about this in your book. Uh, but how do you seek to advance this kind of argument uh, in a mode that doesn't just lapse back into the agonistic combative modes that we're familiar with? And I also want you to talk a little bit about this. You acknowledge that sometimes agonistic inquiry is not an entirely bad thing. Sometimes we need to think back mm-hmm. and forth with each other. Uh, you call for a balance between critical thinking and generous thinking. So yeah, how do you deal with that balance? What does that balance entail, do you think?
1: Yeah. I, and so, it, I mean, it's a really interesting question and it's one that surfaces in literary studies a lot these days around critique, right? And if you are, uh, you're for critique, you're against critique, what is it to be against critique? Um, ultimately, it's true that the critique of critique is still critique, yes. right? And it makes use of critique in the process of pointing out what's wrong with our critical modes and mentalities. And similarly, it's very easy to see me in the book making. An argument um, about the ways we shouldn't argue, um, and you know, making use of of the the benefits of argumentation in the process. And I think one of the places where where our uses and deployments of argument have gone wrong in the last twenty years, maybe um, just you know, grabbing a number out of the air, um, has been in the ways that we've I believe misappropriated some of the ideas that come out of Graff and Birkenstein's They Say, I Say, right? Which is a a really wonderful guide to the rhetorical moves that are are at the heart of academic writing, right? Here are some things that some scholars have said um, and here is my own argument in relationship to what has been said before. And I think we have too often fallen on the side of, here is my argument, which demonstrates why they were all wrong, right? As the easiest rhetorical maneuver that, that kind of elevates my argument um, to the attention of the reader, rather than recognizing that they don't necessarily have to be wrong, for me to add something important to the conversation, right? They can they can, in fact be saying something completely important and I'm adding a nuance that helps turn our conversation collectively in a new direction. So it's still argument, right? It's still back and forth. It's still working with the ideas of those who've gone before and attempting to push them in new directions. But that we, as a culture, I think, cannot understand argument and argumentation outside of the rhetoric of battle, right? You have to do your opponent in, you have to land the crucial blow, you have to, you know, all of those kinds of, of really pretty violent at times um, images that we bring to the nature of argument says something I think about, about who we are and what we understand argument to do and be in the world. And I mean, this comes back to um, Lakoff and Johnson, right? Metaphors we live by, right? That it's impossible for us to imagine argument as being anything other than violent um, is a real shortcoming, right? That what if we understood argument as they say, as a dance instead that requires two partners Um, working in opposite directions at times, but needs both of them to be complete and to together build something of beauty. And that's you know that would be my goal for thinking about how critical thinking and generous thinking work together. That we are we have the same goal even if we disagree, um, and we want to push one another's ideas to be as strong as they can possibly be. And that process of disagreement, if if we're able to treat it more as a dance in which we're coming together to build something new, uh, we might be able to think think a little bit more generously about what they have said before we move on to what we say in our own arguments.
0: That's really helpful, yeah. And I think it's helpful to think about the They Say, I Say uh, book and, and sort of attendant rhetoric as really opening up a lot of possibilities for engaging other ideas, and yet certain ones tend to get privileged and it doesn't have yeah. to be that way. So I think I think sort of shifting the metaphors, is a helpful maneuver to open up new avenues of how we can re- be, be in conversation with other people.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Okay, well now, now let's talk about institutions um, because I think what's helpful is how you've taken this, this, uh, these questions about how we do scholarship and how we um, you know faculty in the academy function, but you've also then tried to apply this to how institutions might operate. And one of the parts of your new project that really uh, jumped to my mind uh, because of my, my own personal experiences is, is you talk about um, the challenges of, of embodying wise generosity in a time of perceived scarcity when departments and major, majors and faculty are on the chopping block. And, and the worry is if I engage generously, am I just gonna be steamrolled and taken advantage of by people who are being more you know, ruthless? Mm-hmm. Um, and you, and you, I think you, you warn about the ways that sort of talk of shared sacrifice, uh, can provide cover for really unjust damaging decisions. So what is uh, generous engagement or solidarity, which is another term you talk about sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, what does that look like in institutions that are facing budget cuts, which is, uh, unfortunately many of our institutions right now.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, since, since generous thinking was in development, I've had the opportunity to speak at a lot of campuses that have been sort of thinking about how to move from the strategic planning phase um, into implementation and sort of recognizing that they needed something more than just a good plan, right? That they needed a real culture change in understanding the relationship between the campus and its environment and understanding the relationship between the folks working on campus um, and their various units to one another, and to the, the institution as a whole. and. Um, I I was in this one talk and, you know, had done my whole spiel and it was all generosity and rainbows and unicorns and everybody was super, super happy. And then this one faculty member asked, you know, this is all well and good. But like, and this is well before COVID, right? Like I'm there in person, times are good. The market is up. This institution has money to invest. But she says, you know, what do we do in hard times? What does generosity look like in hard times? You know, how do we keep ourselves from reverting to that position in which every unit is out for themselves and that if we don't get the position, it's because somebody else got it. So we've got to fight for our own and make sure that we've got the most students coming into our classes so that we can get the budget that we need in order to do the work that we need to do and so forth. So many of our institutional structures, our budget structures, our hiring structures are are set up, set all of us up to be in this nonstop mode of competition with one another. So how can we be generous, particularly at a moment when times are hard? Um, and I remember standing there after she asked that question and thought, oh my God, she's completely right. Like that, I haven't given enough thought. I really don't know. How do we do this? And so, you know, I said some things about transparency and decision making, which is something that I want to come back to because I think that's more serious than my offhandedness makes it sound. Um, and, but I really feel like there, there, there is something about the kind of muscle memory that we develop when we're consistently generous in good times that can help us keep ourselves accountable and keep from falling back into more competitive behavior in bad times. Now, Developing generous behavior in bad times is hard. It's really hard because we are all feeling under threat at this point. Um, And some of us more under threat than others, right? Um, Small departments that have lost students in recent years feel their contributions to the curriculum undervalued. Um, Faculty who are in contingent positions know that they're the most likely ones not to be renewed in the future. Staff who have very little in the way of job security at all are subject to furloughs and layoffs and even position, position removals. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to maintain a sense of solidarity at a moment when everybody is afraid that their position is going to be the one that's undermined. Um, but I do think that first of all, recognizing, and this is where the argument in leading generously is going, recognizing that that the object of our institutions, right? The object of leadership within our institutions shouldn't be a budget. and it shouldn't be a structure. It shouldn't be a building it's people, right? Without the people that make up the institution, the institution is has no purpose whatsoever. And so recognizing that our first point of concern and care has to be for the people within the institution, whether they're the employees or the students or the community that's affected by the decisions that we make, that's got to be the first point of concern. And then beyond that um, comes this question about how decisions are made. Um, when the decisions have to be made that are hard. And this is the kind of thing that I would really love to see institutions begin to develop in good times so that they have this to fall back on in bad times, so that they have the ability to be transparent and open and have trusting communications around um, the kinds of hard decisions that have to be made. So here's an example, Um, my own college is led by a dean um, who is a philosopher, and um, philosophers and ethicists make very good deans, by the way. So I, I like vote for this um, as something that should be um, should be made more general, um, because he's very thoughtful, right, and very concerned to make sure that he is acting from a values based position um, whenever he is making the choices that he has to make. Um, he started a couple of years ago bringing all of the chairs of departments and directors of programs together frequently. We meet you know, monthly and sometimes more than monthly, depending on what's going on. And during the budget process, he started sharing with us the choices that he had to make, the places where he had to make decisions, and had us share with one another our own arguments that we were making for what our units needed. And so because of that, all of the chairs and the directors had this vision of like what everybody else was asking for and what their needs were and what the Dean had to work with and what his choices were. And because of that, when he ultimately, you know, we discussed them and we worked them through this, this critical friends process in which we kind of talked about the, the arguments that we were making and the, the needs that we were experiencing. But because of that set of conversations, when the Dean made decisions that only a few people got to be happy with, We had all been involved in the conversation and we had all seen the range of needs that were being presented. And we all knew the impossible position that he was in, not being able to fill everybody's needs. I think similarly in bad times, you know, when there isn't a new position to go around, not only that, there are some positions that may have to go. Um, Having that history of conversation among us, having trust in him that he was showing us everything that he could show us and trusting that we were being heard about our concerns um, made the processes that have happened to this point um, feel less threatening to all of us. And so we've been less inclined to fall back into those positions of fighting for our units and refusing to hear anybody else's needs along the way. Um, Where this hasn't gone as well as at at our institution as I would like to see it has been those conversations across the lines of of kinds of employment, right? Um, I think that the Tenured and tenure stream faculty have heard a little bit from the non tenured and um, and and you know non tenurable faculty about their concerns, but they haven't heard as much from the staff about the kinds of concerns that staff have. And so the faculty have had a tendency to argue for their own positions. Um, not recognizing th- that the nature of a budget means, you know, if we get what we ask for, the staff are not going to get what they need. Um, so I, I want to um, to inspire as much as I can, the kinds of conversations that will allow all of us to hear and see one another's positions and to really begin to understand that the more that we can do to protect folks who are not in our not in our unit, not in our our hiring our p- position in the, the employee hierarchy, the better off all of us are going to be in the end. Sorry, very long-winded answer. Um, but like I'm really, really passionate about this right now because I think it's something that our institutions are by and large not set up to do a good job of. Um, to being transparent about decisions, um, finding ways to have those conversations rather than doing a bit of a divide and conquer um, and really recognizing that, that that the community that works together and learns together and thinks together on campus has to be the thing that is most protected um, at a time when we're cutting budgets.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very helpful, I think. And you do a nice job of showing the the real benefits both you know hopefully in better decision making but at least in buy-in and solidarity and and community health uh, that come from a genuinely transparent decision making process where people feel heard and they get get an opportunity to hear uh the needs of their you know other groups or other uh, what you talked about with other um employees i think that kind of divide and conquer mentality is much more the norm. And, um, yeah. and it just, it, it, there's a sort of festering distrust um, amongst different academic groups or between different sets of employees. And, uh, and that can really be toxic for an institution. And then it, of course, it makes it very hard for people to want to approach these conversations from a perspective that looks out for the good of other areas on campus.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Well, I, I hope uh, I hope some administrators are listening because because I think you know what what I like about your book is and your work that I think there's a lot of um, application for people in power, various levels of power, right? And and often uh, even those of us who feel like we're not at the table are at a table. Um, but but mm-hmm. it's not it's not just for people who um, you know at the dean level or something. It's also for you know I think you do a nice job of thinking about what this looks like for. Uh, other other people, and one one area is is in the kind of um, other institutional building work that you've done. Uh, whether it just be in the way that you do your scholarship, but also I'm thinking of uh, and and I guess I should specify for people who don't know. But you have this practice of publishing your work in various drafts uh, before final publication and soliciting and responding to to feedback. Um, and I, I also think about your work with Humanity Commons um, and that, that whole network. Um, you know, what kind of, um, I guess, working in public do you think that we can do, even those of us who might not be at the, the seat of institutional power, but we still are at, at other seats?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this started for me. I mean, this whole process that I have of posting draft work and seeking comment on it started um, because I was very early on in the academic blogging space. Like 2002, I started a blog, and um, I mean, which was an exercise. It purely in immediate gratification, right? I'd been writing these articles that took forever to get through the process and that I never knew if anybody read or not. And I'd been working on my first book which took forever and was going to be several more years before it came out. Um, and just really wanted somebody to read something and tell me what they thought about it and argue with me if they thought I was wrong or push me in new directions. I wanted feedback. I wanted a response. And Um, so I started this blog and it was very offhanded stuff that I was publishing early on. It was just, you know, thoughts about um, work that I might develop or ideas that got pulled out of other material or what have you, you know, it was just like what I was thinking about the world and my work at that at that point and i stumbled into a small community of other folks in literary and cultural and media studies who were similarly experimenting with blogs as a mode of of thinking through their own work and we developed this very regular practice of um, posting comments on one another's posts and um, referring to linking to one another's posts on our own on our own blogs. and it produced this kind of network conversation that um, really, became the place where I felt my work process begin to come alive, right? It wasn't just me reading books, taking notes on books, writing articles about books, and then hoping that they made sense to someone other than me. I had this community that was constantly telling me when I was on to something interesting and when I was saying things that didn't make sense. And, you know, when I should elaborate on an idea. And it, sort of after a while, it took a while um, for me to recognize that I was using blog posts as a place to try ideas out and get that feedback, develop them into something more, take them to a conference, write a paper, what have you. But it was the blog that I kept coming back to for that engagement. And so, um, you know, after several years, when I had I had gotten around to figuring out what my second book was going to be. Um, And it turned out that the second book developed out of a whole lot of blog posts. Um, When I was in negotiations with the press that I was going to publish it with, I asked them if they would let me post the entire draft manuscript online and do an open review process at the same time that the press sent it out for conventional um, peer review. Now, I should say that the book was about scholarly communication. Right. Right? And so it sort of made sense. I had this whole chapter about the future of peer review in which I made the argument that we needed to do more peer review in public and we needed to open up the process. And we needed to think about the ways that blog communication, like I had described, was a new form of peer review. And so I I was able to make the argument to the press that they this is like 2008, that they should let me do this um, because it would be good for the project to sort of walk its walk in addition to just talking, right? And so I did, and I mean, it, it, I, I kind of went into that process a little bit naively. Um, I, I, you know, get asked a lot, like how, how did you become brave enough to post the whole thing online when it hadn't yet been revised and when you didn't know what the peer reviewers were gonna say? And it honestly just never occurred to me that there was something to be worried about there. This was a community that I'd been in conversation with for years and I wanted their input. And so I got it. Um, We opened up the peer review process, um, ended up with about 40 commenters um, who came through and commented on various components of the manuscript. Um, many of them um, scholars in my field, but lots of them outside my field entirely. I had librarians who came in and commented, particularly on the chapter on preservation, which was really helpful. Um, I had an um, IP attorney who came in and kind of schooled me a little bit on copyright, which helped me be less wrong in the book when it was finally published, and that was all really good. And um, everybody basically, you know, there were there were some convergently things that happened and, you know, some people argued for their perspective. But one of the things that I was able to see through this process was like, you know, you send out a book manuscript, it goes to two readers and you get reader one who tells you 20 things that you really ought to do to make the book better. And you get reader two, who tells you 20 totally different things that you ought to do to make the book better. And some of them in conflict and you know some of them mutually supporting. So write the mutually supporting things you know you need to deal with. Um, but the other things, it's hard to tell sometimes what's a real issue and what's an idiosyncrasy of a particular reader. And so I was able to see through the conversation that the readers were having with one another in the blog or in the, the open review site, where there were things that were very serious that I needed to deal with, whether there were things that somebody was making a good point about. um, But I could make a decision about whether I was going to deal with them or not. And where there were things that somebody would come in and say, this is a terrible idea. And you absolutely must change this. And someone else would come behind and say, I'm not so sure I agree. This is what she's actually doing here. And it's important. And so I just had a much better sense from that kind of conversation about what it was I needed to do to to make the book better. Um, There were some some real benefits that we saw in the the traditional reviews as well. I should note, um, a traditional reviewer knows that their job is to give you feedback on the whole book. Right. Um, and so you get a sense from those reviews of, of whether the structure of the book is correct or whether there's some like two chapters are in the wrong order or whether, you know, there's some whole huge issue you've failed to deal with. The, the comments online tended to be much more local and much more focused on particular questions as i was wrestling with them and so i i got a much better sense of the holistic view of the manuscript from the conventional reviewers um but you know it it went super well and it ended up producing a really interesting set of conversations that drove interest in the book um, it's still the, the open review site for that first book um, still gets visited by graduate seminars periodically I'll get new comments and I know that somebody's assigned it to their graduate class um, which is awesome and it's still there as an artifact right that mm-hmm. you can you can see how the conversation ended up leading to the revision and I was able to cite, um, commenters, you know, and thank them for their contributions to the book as it as it ended up um, unfolding. So, you know, we've done it again since then. I did it with generous thinking. Um, it was 10 years later and I was um, 10 years more nervous about the internet and um, its, its level of discourse, you know, post Gamergate and post a whole lot of other situations that made clear that you know, there is a risk involved in making work public before you're fully ready um, or feeling like it's bulletproof, right? Um, but I, I, again, sort of trusted the community, um, invited a few people, um, about 40 of them, to come in for two weeks of closed community review and which it was just 40 invited readers Um, Not all of them true believers in the things that I had to say, some of them curmudgeons and some of them skeptical, Um, but all of them people of goodwill who I knew would take the project seriously and who would push me in the right direction. And once they'd come in and left me, first of all, confident enough that I wasn't a total fool. And um, secondly, they had sort of set a ground tone. We then dropped the wall and opened the, the thing up to the community. And again, I ended up with 30 some odd commenters who left about 350 comments throughout the project. And um, I think that they really they really pushed me in some important directions and made the book much better than it would have been otherwise.
0: Well, that's, that's very fascinating to, h- to hear that, you know, it's one thing to see it from the outside, but then to hear your own description is helpful. And, and you talk a little bit uh, about in the book and then just now about already the, uh, in the last 20 years, you know, the, the internet has become a different place uh, and it's, mm-hmm. there's political polarization that's, that's intensified. And there's the, the, the internet has just become sort of a more chaotic and sometimes mean place. Mm-hmm. Um What do you think, I guess, are the possibilities of engaging that space productively? Uh, And and I guess a related question comes out of um, some of the work you've done, arguing that universities need to relate to their communities better. Um, And of course, I think COVID has only exacerbated some of the distrust between elites and academics and and various publics. So how can we start bridging these divides or um, kind of engaging a broader public in a, uh, a a healthy way and not just a, a scary way. You know, what is, what does that conversation look like maybe?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think these are, these are extremely serious questions because I think that, um, I mean, there there are publics who want to engage in good faith with the kind of work that's going on with the academy, but who feel excluded yes. by some of the the language that we use and some of the other ways that our work becomes inaccessible. Um, they they you know, care about the same work, the same material, the same subject matter that we care about, and yet feel kind of talked down to and um, otherwise made to feel like outsiders to our processes. Um, Then there are publics who frankly do not want to engage with us in good faith and who are there to engage in order to do damage and in order to, um, to, win one for their side. Um, Those folks, I think, are not the majority, right? And it's hard to remember that because they often make the majority of the noise, right? right? And so I think it's important for us, first of all, to recognize that there are many, many people of goodwill out there um, who want to be engaged by us and who are willing to participate in the kinds of conversations that we want to have. Um, in a good faith way, but need an opening to do so. And that if they are brought in, um, we can help tone down some of the noise um, by having better conversations available to us. Those folks who do not approach these conversations from a position of goodwill However, we need to be prepared for um, and we need to recognize the, the kinds of damage that trolls and um, that political vindictiveness and that other kinds of just generally terrible behavior can have on the ways that we work. And we've seen so many cases lately of um, academics who are saying things that people don't want to hear and who then um, end up getting reported to their dean or their provost, who have alumni who come out and say they have to be fired, who like, and that kind of of damage that can do a lot of damage to a career, right? Particularly where an institution isn't ready to hear um, that kind of complaint and isn't inclined to have the backs of their own faculty members. And so I I make the argument very strongly to folks who are considering working in public in a whole range of different ways that they've got to be sure that people within their institution know about the work that they're doing, that they're in support of that work and that they're there to protect them when they need protecting, right? That the institution is going to have their back when it comes down to it. So that's step one is that, you know, really thinking about those, those folks who are out to do damage and being prepared for the potential of that damage, being ready to say um, things to the contrary. But then there is the, the the importance of not shutting down the public conversation in order to be able to reach the people of goodwill who really do want to be part of a good faith conversation about the kinds of work that we're doing within the academy. Um, there are a lot of different components to working in public that that I think we all need to do a better job of thinking about. I mean, scholars do, but also our institutions do. And we need to recognize that first of all, you know, we're only gonna be able to reach those publics with the work that we're doing if we're publishing in venues where it's likely to be found, right? If we're publishing in, in inward facing journals only that are only speaking to our set of scholars, um, it's you know, not a surprise if the work doesn't have the kind of public impact that we would like it to have. So we need to publish in more public facing venues. We also need to publish in more public facing registers and be ready to do what I describe in generous thinking as a form of code switching between making an argument for an internal audience of scholars and making that same argument for the world. um, The more we get better at that and the more that we get better about about, um, that being a component of our work to make that argument publicly, Um, the more we'll be able to draw those conversations with the people of goodwill who want to participate. But that also means that our institutions have to be ready to understand that kind of working in public as actual real work right and not just say well you need to be publishing in peer reviewed journals of the highest caliber and the most exclusive venues in order to get credit for your annual review but instead to recognize that that the process of engaging a public is itself work that really needs to be rewarded and that it will bring benefits to the institution if its faculty and its staff are in these ongoing conversations. So we really need to think differently just about how scholars do the work, but also how the work is assessed, how it's evaluated, how it's valued, and how it's rewarded. And that's that's a big change for institutions to be considering.
0: it's a helpful set of uh of considerations to have though as you go into that kind of work and and thinking about which aspects of a faculty person's job they can open up to a broader public and um -hmm. and recognize that that's going to be a challenge sometimes but but hopefully has real real rewards i think you know so let me kind of frame this in terms of the liberating arts project but i see this as a follow-up question in many ways so the Liberating Arts Project uh, was a, is a response to COVID and the sort of economic technological pressures that it's bringing to higher ed, but also to the racial injustice and the kind of political ferment of the last year. Um, and some students can find academic inquiry and the slow work of learning to be really disconnected from real world crises crises like racism. And this is where I see it as a follow-up to, to the, what you just talked about. I think. You know, academics don't always do a good job of showing how the the modes of inquiry that we uh, engage in or the kinds of education we engage in and offer can have uh, real public goods and and can help students, uh, train students to address persistent political and social problems. So uh, maybe there's some reasons, you know, justified reasons why students might not find uh, liberal arts learning or um, college inquiry to be relevant to these problems, but uh, what what might we do to help? You know, show how slow thinking maybe uh, or, or or difficult mm-hmm. academic inquiry does have real uh, social and political goods.
1: That- it is exactly the right question to be asking, I think. Um, and it's, I mean, it's one that I i alternately have 40 answers for and like no answer for because it's, it's such a huge question. Um, I mean, one of the things that I want to, that I always want to say in response to this kind of question, like what good are the liberal arts for when we're facing these kinds of crises is to point to the ways in which our ability to understand the crises today is predicated on the work that's been done in the liberal arts for the last 20 years. So, you know, our students today and and the, you know, a broader and broader um, swath of the general public understand race and racism as being, um, as being larger than the individual, right? It's not about individual perspectives, it's, it's a socially determined and socially constructed set of issues that are really institutional in nature and that we need to understand and approach from that institutional perspective. All of that comes out of gender and ethnic studies um, over the last 20 years. And so doing that work in public and ensuring that the kinds of conversations that we're having as we think through um, the kinds of issues that we work on as scholars, that that's having a public resonance um, puts us back in that conversation and makes us not irrelevant um, to the kinds of work that, 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 young people today are correct in saying we need to be focused on. We need to be focused on questions around climate change. We need to be focused on questions around racial injustice. We need to be focused on questions about the use of force in our society and the ways that it unfolds. I mean, there 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 are many questions like this, um, but ensuring that we are having those conversations in public Um, is one way of making the connection between the kinds of work that we do um, and and the kinds of of public concerns that students today have. But the the point that you make about the slowness of that work is a really difficult one um, to to think through because we're in a technological moment and uh, an economic moment in which we are as a culture increasingly driven to have answers now, right? And if the ways we're doing X aren't working, we need to be able to put Y in place tomorrow. And we don't take the time to think through the implications of putting Y in place and what it might mean or what it is about X that isn't working or what have you. We just pressed to make progress in all kinds of ways, faster and faster. And we feel that in academic life as we're constantly feeling like we're being asked to do more um, and you know, doing more with less has become our, our primary mode of being. Um, but finding those points at which we can really slow down and take the time to engage um, with the work that, that is most important to us rather than most urgent, um, I think is is a really, it's, it's a learned skill, right? Um, I know that you've talked um, not too long ago with Alan Jacobs right. and um, his book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, I, I believe, um, I, I mean, I, I found to be utterly inspirational on this question of slowness and speed and the necessity of really attempting to think outside our own sphere of reference. And, and in particular about the ways of introducing students to that significance as well. The other book that I was gonna to point to in this regard is um, Johann Names, um, What's the Point of College? Um, which is really wonderful in thinking about this question of the liberal arts um, in a moment when everything is pressing us toward utilitarianism. And um, I, I strongly recommend it. Um, he and I don't agree on everything, um, but I do think that that the kinds of questions that he raises about the close and intense work with um, with the material of history in the same way that Jacobs raises it, um, is really crucial for us in attempting to get students to understand what it is they're doing in college um, in a different way.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you. And maybe my next question is already answered, but I'll ask it and you can you can uh, elaborate as you see fit. But um, in, in your book, you describe the ways in which education has largely come to be understood as a private career oriented good right yeah and I think what you've just done is begin to articulate how we might go about recovering the sense of education as also a public and communal and social good right yeah uh, but is there anything else that you would add to how we can help students and the, and I guess through really the broader public um, understand higher education as as uh, an important good for the community
1: absolutely well, I think, I mean, one of the key things comes back to the question of speed that you raised again. I mean, we have a tendency in American culture today to believe that at the end of a four-year degree, and if we can get it in three years, so much the better, um, you should be fully qualified for a well-paying career that will stand you in good stead. And therefore, you know, you, you want to find a major that's named as closely as possible after the career you intend to have, right? So that there's this sort of transactional process that the university is supposed to be doing. You study our work, we get you job, and you go forth. When in fact, the, the entire principle behind the liberal arts has never been about that sort of career transaction. It's been, if anything, about learning how to learn in a broad ranging way, that whatever the job you land in immediately after you graduate, whatever it is you do, you're prepared to move into new fields and you're prepared to shift directions and learn new skills. And you're prepared to have have a much richer life, right? For um, benefit of, of just knowing how to find new information, how to take new ideas on board, how to resolve conflicts, um, how to think creatively about new paths. And so we need to find ways again, to communicate that, that the purpose of the degree is not transactional right? It's not about finding the career and being qualified for it because you've got the certificate. It's instead about the development of a set of habits of mind that will serve you through a lifetime. And that's it. I mean, it's, it's a hard sell in a, in a culture that wants everything tomorrow. Um, but it's exactly the kind of education that enabled so many of the leaders who are today calling for more and more transactional approaches to the university to get where they got, right? No member of the Supreme Court took a degree in Supreme Court studies, right? No one in Congress um, went through a program that was aimed at basically vocational education. They got the kind of broad-ranging degrees that enabled them to learn the things later on that allowed them to get to where we are. Everyone in our culture deserves that to whatever extent they want it. And so finding ways to really recognize that we build we build a broader, more, oh gosh, what is it I want to say here? We build a, a more educated public um that is able to adjust to and change and learn new things over time the more we are able to bring them through a process of liberal education
0: that's very helpful thank you um good well i I, you know we've talked about some some challenging topics and i guess you've given uh listeners plenty of hope but uh, i wonder if you might um kind of come back to this, this question of how can people who, who aren't uh, at the, the big seat making some of these challenging decisions mm-hmm. uh, resist despair? Because I think you do a nice job of sort of facing the systemic challenges uh, truthfully and courageously, uh, but then also um, looking for opportunities that individuals can begin to affect mm-hmm. this kind of systemic change. So what words of encouragement or hope might you give to faculty or other members of university communities who are really seeking to to foster the conditions for genuine liberal arts education under what are often quite challenging conditions?
1: You know, I I mean, I have have at various points been accused of being um, naively optimistic. And (laughs) um, I will say that the last several years have really challenged that position. I mean, it's hard to remain a naive optimist in the face of everything that we've had to deal with um, of late. Um, But I do think there is still grounds, significant grounds for hope and for um, continuing to work toward the possibility of things being better than they are. Um, I make the argument, or I'm I'm working on making the argument at any rate in, in leading generously that everyone has the potential to make transformative change in their institution by exercising influence where they can over the policies and the procedures that they have under their control, whatever those may be. For an instructor, it may be grading processes. Um, For a member of uh, an academic department, it may be adjusting um, peer evaluation processes in hiring and tenure and promotion and so forth. All of us have spheres of influence um, in which we can find ways to work with our colleagues to create a better environment. And when we create a better environment that we work in, that becomes visible. And it has the potential to percolate through the institution and to make things within the institution better. Um, One thing that we did here at MSU, again, um, my department not too long ago conducted a a top to bottom review of its bylaws and worked through them to make sure that they were um, as focused as on on creating um, equity and inclusion as they possibly could that they were um, keeping up with the times in terms of um, review and and like our understanding of what scholarship is um, and so forth. And that they were as generous um, to our colleagues as they could possibly be um, in, in thinking about the terms of our employment and our work together. And the process was Extremely painful um, if you've ever worked on a bylaws review committee, Um, but the entire department got involved in it. Everybody had a role working on some part of this. And we came out with a set of bylaws that I think are, are much more fair in all kinds of ways. They don't narrowly define what scholarship is and restrict. Folks, 20 years from now to producing work exactly the same way that we do today. They don't create punitive structures that determine how much work you have to do in a given year. They, 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 They recognize that we're a group of individuals who need to come together in a spirit of generosity if we're going to get our common work done. And revising that by those bylaws have had ripple effects. Other departments within the college are similarly revising theirs now. The college has changed a lot of its processes and practices as well. And you know, we're hoping that this might you know, rise to the level of the university. So starting, starting local, something you know, that you can change where you are and letting that change create better ways of working that become visible um, is, is my primary avenue of hope these days. So I would highly recommend that.
0: Well, that is indeed a, a good word of hope. So thank you. Thank you so much for talking with us today. And I would encourage listeners to uh, to check out, uh, I guess they can find your book. Uh, it's kfits.info. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes. kfits.info is my website. Um, you'll find all of the posts that are the various pieces of leading generously there. Um, as well as links to the places where generous thinking are and so forth.
0: And I would recommend that. So thank you so much for for joining us today and for, for sharing your insights.
1: Thank you.